Thank you for joining us for the sermon podcast of Northwest Presbyterian Church in Dublin, Ohio. Our church exists to celebrate the gospel through Christ-centered study, worship, and prayer, to connect in community through fellowship, accountability, shepherding, and outreach, and to love our city through sacrificial giving of time, treasure, and talents so that it might flourish as a place where Jesus is known. For service times and more information about our church, visit npcdublin.org. And now, Pastor Dave Shooter. Well, I, was, uh, I, I have just been uh, contemplative since uh, Jay's prayer a few minutes ago. Uh, one, I've been meaning to talk to you for some time about your attendance, Jay. Uh, it's just, uh, it hasn't come up until now. Uh, <laughs> now's a great time. Uh, no, we're, we're grateful for, for your ministry and for the ministry of the Elmerks for so many years in Berlin uh, and are thankful for that. But uh, when you mentioned 1994, uh, I was struck. That's the uh, the year that Kim and I got married, and today's the day that we got married in 1994. Thanks. That's not really what I was going for, but thank you. As you can tell, we're we're busy celebrating together this weekend. <laughs> Great times. Uh, the Kim's Kim's traveling for a, a friend's husband's 60th birthday, uh, which also seems staggering. But I was thinking back to '94, and um, and, and how we got married. And then two weeks later, uh, at that point in time, you had to, you had to test out of Greek in order to register in the seminary. And so, uh, that's how we spent the summer of our first marriage was learning Greek so that we could sign up for seminary. Uh, so I didn't see much of Kim the first months that we were married. Uh, it's gotten better since then. Uh, but, um, yeah, Wow, so, so many thoughts of God's faithfulness to us running through my head. We've been singing about God's faithfulness this morning. You've caught that theme in some of the songs that uh, Paul has carefully selected for us in the call to worship, speaks of the faithfulness of God. Uh, but the challenge of Psalm 89 is exactly with the faithfulness of God. Uh, and the question of Psalm 89 is how should God's people worship? How should God's people persevere collectively when God appears to not being faithful uh, to promises which he has explicitly spoken? Uh, if you were here last week uh, when we looked at Psalm 88, uh, we looked at the challenge of holding on to faith when God did not seem to be faithful to an individual. Uh, that was the challenge of Psalm 88. How do you press on in faith uh, when challenges are hard in our individual lives? And Psalm 89 is about a similar challenge, but it's collective. Uh, how should the people of God collectively keep pressing on in faith uh, when God does not seem to be living up to promises which he has made. Psalm 89 is about faithfulness in a hard moment, but the hard moment is collective. And so you can understand how uh, when they were compiling the Psalter, they paired Psalm 88 and 89 together. Uh, you have a Psalm that's about kind of an individual challenge, and then you have a Psalm about a collective challenge uh, and we'll explore that as we go along. The immediate problem of Psalm 89 is that Israel's king and kingdom are in real trouble. Now, we don't know the exact historical event, 
the actual historical event is open to some interpretation. It might have been the defeat of an Israelite king in battle. It may have been a, a red letter horrible event like uh, the Babylonians capturing Jerusalem and carrying uh, so many into captivity. Uh, the psalm would fit uh, either of those kinds of circumstances. The psalm would also fit uh, the circumstance after captivity uh, when people returned from Babylon back to Jerusalem and returned to a city that was destroyed, uh, to a temple that was torn down, and to prospects of a future uh, which were not great. In verse 38 and 39, voice the heartache. But now you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. Now, if you're newer to the story of the Bible, what is really helpful to understand is that royal disaster and thus national disaster did not fit easily with the covenant promise that God made to King David. This is the background uh, apart from which Psalm 89 won't make much sense to you. So I, I have to give this to you a little bit. Way back during King David's lifetime, God spoke to him and made a covenant promise to him. This is found in 2 Samuel 7. God to David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And God's covenant with David included conditions. Uh, if David's royal descendants strayed from faithful obedience, God continues, when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So God said that if David's descendants uh, strayed away from the faith, he would discipline them, but he would remain faithful to him. And you will catch uh, the repeated word forever in the psalm. And, and you should at least underline that mentally because it's the forever word that's the big challenge. Forever is a powerful word. You know, it's wedding season. You may have gone to some weddings this summer. Brides and grooms make powerful promises when they stand before minister, ultimately stand before God and make forever promises, forever. And we understand that we're natural promise breakers, that, that we need God's grace to be active in our lives to keep the promises that we make. But God is not a promise breaker. It, it is against his character to break his word. Steadfast love and faithfulness are core to who he is. Now, we've, uh, we've seen over the years that in that, that great paradigm moment in the Old, Old Testament, when Moses is leading Israel in the exodus from slavery to freedom, he asks God to reveal himself to him. God puts Moses in the rock 
uh, and passes by him and announces his name. And he says, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. In other words, when God announces to Moses who he is, he wraps steadfast love and faithfulness into his core identity. So when God makes a forever promise to David, and when it seems like the forever promise is being rejected, this is a spiritual problem of the highest order. Lord, where is your steadfast love of old? Verse 49, which by your faithfulness you swore to David. So there's the question that I, I wrestled with this week. What does a prayer about a spiritual challenge faced 500, 600, maybe 1,000 years before Jesus mean to American suburban Christians? I mean, every December, we, we gather in this room and we sing carols commemorating the birth of Jesus, the son of David. Once in royal David's city stood a lowly cattle shed where a mother laid her baby in a manger for a bed. In other words, we, we know a little bit more about the story. Simon Peter, for example, explained it to his countrymen uh, in the Pentecost sermon, uh, saying that resurrected, forever alive Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise that Yahweh made to David. Peter in his sermon, uh, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him, parentheses David, uh, that he would set one of his, David's, descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. In other words, we, we know a little bit more about the story. So how does Psalm 89 be for us Profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Well, here are uh, at least a couple of ways. We, we live in between knowing how God keeps his forever promise to David and experiencing the peace and the wholeness and the victory of the king's reign. And there will be moments for the church collectively when the church collectively wonders how God is being faithful Moments such as the martyrdom of Christians around the world, the church losing a privileged place and influence in a culture, the church's own failures. So Psalm 89 has wisdom for us uh, about how to press on faithfully when God doesn't seem to be being faithful. Let me, let me offer you three uh, Three applications from the sermon. First, uh, we're introduced here to the great king and reminded of what is our greatest glory. Let me ask you, uh, uh, what, what is your greatest possession? You're like, oh, that sounds like a, a pastor trick question. I, I know the answer is Jesus. <laughs> but just, just think about it. Uh, your, your prized possession, that thing that you wouldn't let go of, 
the thing that you treasure most? Well, the psalmist declares his intent in verses 1 and 2 to worship the Lord for his steadfast love and his faithfulness. In verses 3 and 4, his specific focus will be God's forever promise to King David. And then he goes in verses 5 to 18 into an amazing, powerful, praise-filled celebration of the Lord's faithfulness and steadfast love. The Lord is incomparably great. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. The Lord is incomparably great. Every now and then in church life, uh, someone gets wound up about angels. And I'm just saying this now because nobody that I know is currently wound up about angels, so I'm not calling you out. If you are wound up about angels, uh, then you can call Chris. <laughs> but, but every now and then, you know, someone will ponder angels and they'll, they'll wonder if uh, a loved one has recently had an encounter with an angel, a favorite aunt had a flat tire somewhere in Montana and was being circled by a mountain lion. And then uh, amazingly, Roma Downey showed up with a tire iron and uh, 12 pack of Krispy Kremes and then disappeared. And they come and they say, Dave, could it have been an angel? And I'll say, are they all not ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? It could have been an angel. Usually in Scripture, when angels show up, people fall down terrified. But, but surely angels exist and are magnificent servants of the Lord and are in no way comparable to the Lord. That's the point the psalmist is making. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? a God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones and awesome above all who are around him. Now, an army in force is an amazing thing to view if you see it on the news. Uh, I, I had an opportunity uh, in Kuwait while trying to track down some lost property uh, to, to come into this storage yard in Kuwait that was filled with acres and acres and acres of main battle tanks that the army didn't need at that point in the, uh, the invasion of Iraq. And, and you look at all of that stored might, and uh, it was amazing to contemplate. An angel army in force would be even more terrifying. But in verse 8, angel armies tremble themselves before the Lord. Who is as mighty as you are, O Lord? He rules, the psalmist says, the, the most chaotic environment an Israelite could imagine. Uh, Israelites were land dwellers, not so much seagoers. Uh, the most chaotic environment that they could imagine uh, was the ocean. The Lord controls the seas for his purposes. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves uh, rise, you still them. <laughs> this is why Jesus' miracle of calming the storm was so impressive to the disciples. They're like, who, who is this who speaks? And the waves are stilled. 
I mean, the Lord is, is so majestic in his power over the chaos uh, that he uses the sea to drown an Egyptian army. He's majestic. He's mighty. He's also morally pure. His moral purity, righteousness, and justice are the foundation of your throne. Intersects with his majesty and might. And, and this point should not be lost. Derek Kidner, uh, the great psalm commentator who's helped so many of us, notes uh, that this calms our fear that the Lord's might and majesty might be misused. Now, now you read the newspapers and you're savvy on current events uh, in the states and around the world, and you read the news about political corruption and charges back and forth and about how power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts. How's it go? So if you were the Lord and you had absolute power, what would be the danger? The, ange the danger would be that, that with absolute power, you might become an absolute tyrant. But the moral purity of the Lord prevents him from becoming a tyrant. His, his moral purity informs his power. His moral purity informs his majesty. His majesty informs how he will use his power. They all intersect with each other in ways that give us comfort. We should tuck that away for when we're talking with our not believing friends and they question whether or not God uses his power in ways that are good or fair. Say, well, he does have power, but he's also morally pure. Is it not the case that the most glorious resource that we possess is a relationship with the God of great glory? What a great, wonderful, simultaneously dignifying, exalting, and equalizing reality it is to be known and to know the living God, the community of God's people. From every walk of life, from, from every ethnic background, from every experience of success or failure, those who have achieved much and those who, who seem to have achieved less, Every person is brought into a community whose final enduring glory is God. And knowing him is grace, verse 17. For you are the glory of their strength. By your favor, our horn is exalted. So, so nobody can come into church and say, isn't it great that I'm here? This is the Sunday that I've decided to go to church today, and surely people sitting next to me will be blessed. As a matter of fact, I might get an award, church attendance award. We're giving it to Jay, actually, so if you, if you, came, if you came hoping for it, maybe next week. None of us can do that. We're here because of grace. We're here because the Lord in his majesty and his might and his power and his purity has chosen us to be here, not because we deserve it, but despite our non-deservingness of it. And so it is amazing to possess this knowledge of the great king. It's our greatest glory. I wonder if perhaps 
some of us need to repent of substituting glories, of elevating other glories into that spot. Just do a quick heart check. So, so what other glories have crept in? It's good for us to do that. It's not bad for us to do that. Well, secondly, the psalmist, having celebrated God himself, celebrates God's promise and the, cha- and, um, the promise that he made to David. And this leads us into the challenge. So in verses uh, three and four, he says, you know, I, I've, I, I'm going to highlight the covenant that God made with David. I have found David my I have found David my servant with my holy oil I have anointed him now to verse 21 so that my hand shall be established with him his arm also shall strengthen him so the faithfulness and the steadfast love of the Lord celebrated generally is also beneficial to king David specifically my faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him and in my name shall his horn be exalted. Horn is a, you know, it's a tricky Bible image. It means his, his strength, his, his strength will be exalted. God will view David the king as a son. He will cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. This, this, this lowly Judean shepherd boy. Not even the most impressive son in his family will be elevated by the Lord of might, majesty, and moral purity uh, to be, as it were, the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever, and his throne as the days of the heavens forever, forever, forever. God's forever promise uh, doesn't render him a morally spineless parent, perpetually overlooking bad behavior so as to enable it. He says, if his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, that I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes, but I will not remove, I will not remove from him my steadfast love. So the psalmist at this point isn't deterred by the prospect of God's fatherly discipline. God spoke it to David. He said it would happen. The psalmist has incorporated this into his theological worldview. But but here's the question. Here's the tension. Where does divine discipline become divine rejection? When does royal disaster a king dying in battle, the Babylonians taking over, the people returning to a a, a virtual wasteland. When does royal disaster become covenant rejection? Verse 32, then I will punish their transgressions with the rod. Verse 33, but I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. Charles Spurgeon, uh, writing in a previous generation, put it this way of verse 33, O glorious fear-killing sentence, this crowns the covenant with exceeding glory. Mercy may seem to depart from the Lord's chosen, but it shall never altogether do so, end quote. But let's pause right there. 
Because we need to be fair uh, to the emotion and the experience of the psalmist. he's, he's, He's not doing what we so often do in the life of faith. So often in the life of faith, we, we try to spin. We, we, we try to give God an out as if God needs an out from us. God's people, Old Testament and New Testament, and down to the present day, have known bright moments in our history, but we've also known horrible sadnesses. I mean, we, we read about, I mean, maybe you don't read about it much. Maybe this is just a pastoral hazard, but you read about the Old Testament exile of Israel to Babylon. We read about it blithely, Daniel in the lion's den. But I, I thought yesterday morning when I was working on this, what if CNN was broadcasting images of Israelites being dragged from their home by Nebuchadnezzar's troops? Their worldly possessions on fire in the streets, corpses pixelated out, being frog marched across an inhospitable desert. We wouldn't just be all the exile. That's genocide. We love hearing, reading the New Testament. I mean, we draw strength. Uh, from Paul's words in Philippians 4, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This was written by a man who physically met the resurrected Jesus, who wrote those words as a prisoner of the state, awaiting a trial, the outcome of which might be his own execution. How low can the experiences of God's people go wherein God is still faithful to his covenant? Well, you're probably thinking, as, as I thought yesterday, well, Dave, it's, it's nice outside. Where are you going with this? Well, just here. Psalm 89 is about a, a collective hard moment endured by the people of God wherein somehow God is still being faithful to his purpose. And American Christians and the American Christian church are are so discipled by our cultural value of winning. How does the expression go? Winning isn't everything. It's the only thing. It's the only thing. We're so discipled by our cultural value of winning that that when we find ourselves losing cultural acceptability, when we find our influence waning, we need to be careful that we don't get whiny Because the psalmist doesn't go there. He's he's in this hard moment collectively where faithful discipleship doesn't look like winning. And yet he doesn't stoop to whining. I mean, what happens? I mean, just think about it. You're like, Dave, this is really abstract. I, I don't think it will be abstract for American Christians in the near future. How would the Apostle Peter have interpreted discipleship? 
crucified upside down as a spectacle for Roman entertainment. I'm winning. I mean, not to make light of it. What, what would he have drawn on to sustain him in that moment? Would it have not been hard lessons about God's covenant faithfulness in dark moments? This is uh, the wrestling of the Old Testament prophets after the Babylonian disaster. Commentators point out that, that after Babylon captures Jerusalem and exiles the people, the prophets began to look for God to keep his covenant with David differently. For example, Jeremiah, but you could have hundreds of examples. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in land. Somehow God has still got to be on plan A. Somehow plan A still has to be in effect. How differently is God going to keep his promise? This differently. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. He's keeping his promise differently. He's keeping his promise faithfully. He's still, he's far more on plan A than we could imagine. He keeps his promise through the greatest person and brings us into saving solidarity. Psalm 89, read from the perspective of Gabriel's announcement to Mary, reveals wonders. You could go back through Psalm 89 if you wanted to this afternoon. It wouldn't be a bad exercise. And think about it as if about Jesus. Look at verse 19. Of old, you spoke in a vision to your godly one and said, I have granted help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him. And, my, and in my name shall his horn be exalted. Great for David, King David, in that moment in history when Israel was having a, a, a great moment. But greater for Jesus. Here comes in Bethlehem the forever king. The king who comes in humility to enter into solidarity with the subjects that he must save. Which causes us uh, to also read the discipline verses in awe too, because Jesus did not forsake God's law. I mean, if you read through the Old Testament history, I mean, if you read through the history of the kings, I mean, I mean there's a, a few bright moments, but it's generally downhill. They, they invent new ways to break God's law. Here comes Jesus. He did not forsake God's law. He fulfilled it. What king of Israel ever walked more perfectly according to the Lord's rules? And yet who felt the pain of the rod for transgression? He received the punishment for iniquity. For whose iniquity? Well, Isaiah the prophet says it's possible to get this all wrong. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. 
But this son of David wasn't disciplined for his transgression. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds, we are healed. Verse 46 of Psalm 89. How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? No. How long will your wrath burn like fire? For my people, it will burn out at Calvary. The next time you have a, a fire pit this summer or you're grilling uh, and you, you go to put out the, the, that charcoal, watch it for a moment. Watch the last ember. You know how, how those, those last embers, they're, they're, they're fading and then they kind of sputter and then they go dark. You know how that works? Watch the last ember. Remember Psalm 89 Say so that is the Lord's wrath burned out towards his people on the cross. How do God's people worship our God of great faithfulness when it seems like God is being anything but faithful? Life is short. Human experience can seem vain. The grave seems certain, says the psalmist in verse 47. Remember how short my time is. For what vanity you've created all the children of men. What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? The, the psalmist believes the answer to that question is no one. But let me just ask you, what if the answer to that question was not no one? What if the answer to that question was someone? What if there was a someone? Who could deliver your soul from the power of death? Well, what if there was a someone who said, would say that, that your life is not vain, that your life is not empty? Well, what if there was a someone who can deliver your soul from the power of the grave? If you trusted that someone, it would change your perspective on how you worship when it doesn't seem like God is being faithful. Have you met that someone? Have you met the someone who took the chastisement that you deserve and that I deserve? Remember, O oh Lord, how your servants are mocked and how I bear in my heart the insults of many nations with which your enemies mock, O oh Lord, with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. Is it not... Is it not impossible to read those verses and think about the Lord Jesus carrying his cross outside of the city, hearing the, the mocking voices of the assembled nations, of the people of Israel, but also of the Gentiles, heaping derision on him? Mocking the footsteps of the anointed. All the way to where they, they drop the post into the ground. And his friends walk away. And one thief just 
just can't die without blaspheming God one more time. And another thief says, I think we've gotten it wrong. And the one who heard the insults and took the pain said, today you will be with me in paradise. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen.